Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us for this week's NASDAQ Dorsey Wright podcast. And we have a very special podcast this week. Uh, my name is Ian Saunders, and joining us this week uh, for our special edition is uh, is Tom Dorsey. Uh, so, Tom, it's good to hear from you. It's been a little bit. Ian, yeah, this is a, it's a treat for me to come back on the uh, podcast. You know, you guys are now, I think, 700 and some, maybe almost 800 weekly podcasts. And if that isn't amazing, the other day I was listening to the TV and they were interviewing this lady who was in charge of podcasts and those types of things on Spotify. And it was like this was really a new thing. And Spotify has been just, the stock's been going crazy. And one of the reasons is, is, is podcasting. And I think back to as soon as I saw uh, that we had the ability to podcast, we did. And we're, I think, close to 800 weekly podcasts. We're one of the first ones to really do this. Absolutely. And it's been, it's been a continuous week-to-week deal. I haven't, uh, haven't really missed one since you started those years ago, right? I'll tell you what. You know, if, if, uh, if anyone listening has the capability, which I, they probably do, to go back to the old podcasts, the ones in the beginning, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we had Tim Rogers and all, you know, all kinds of different things. They might want to go back to some of the old podcasts, too, which would give you some um, insight into what's going on today. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of going back in time a little bit here, TD, before, um, you know, the few different things that we we're looking to cover and questions that I'm sure people love to hear the answer from or love to hear from you on. Uh, but one thing in particular, I mean, given all the market movement, all the volatility we've seen, over the past few months here, um, within in the quarantine state of things and whatnot, and, and given all the experience that you have in all these prior market times, I know one thing I'm sure uh, users would, would love to hear from you on is, is kind of your take on what's been going on in the markets, things that you're seeing, what you're looking at, and um, things that other people might be able to take a look at there as well. Well, Ian, <clears throat> the interesting thing about this is I've never seen anything like it. Um, I've been through times like 1987, when in one day, we lost close to 22% of the market. And if you, if you, if that happened today, you're talking about 6,800 some points probably lost in one day. Now, can you imagine what the media would do with a 6,000 point drop in the market? I mean, we saw 3,000 recently, How many, mm-hmm. but 6,000 6, in one day, um, they'd be all over that. But that was something that we lived through in 1987, October of 1987. And it's kind of like, you know, been there, done that. You know, the interesting thing about it is the New York Stock Exchange bullish percent, which has always been my most important market indicator, which was created um, in 1947 by A.W. Cohen. And it's, uh, anyone can pull it up on the system. You have Anyone listening here probably has a system. It's BPNYSE. And if you get to know that well, this will give you some great insight into what's going on here. In 1987, um, in September of 87, we had it reversed down for the second time with a lower top. And, you know, guess what? We were in business only for 10 months. You know, that could have been the end of DWA at that point. And, um, the way we handled the 
crash of 1987 is what really vaulted Dorsey Wright. Um, it was nip and tuck there for a while because so many firms went out of business. But by September, the bullish percent had clearly shown to us that something was desperately wrong with the market and that the probability was lower prices. And we didn't have anything else to hang our hat on back then at, at that point. And so Watson and I wrote every day in the report ways that you could utilize options to manage the risk in your portfolios. And we were getting to a point where we were running out of stuff to talk about. And by October 19th, I believe it was, this market went down 500 points in a day. And that was 20, around 22%. And it was the most amazing thing you could have ever seen. You couldn't do anything with it, just like what just happened, um, except watch it. And boy, it, it created so many problems with people who were on margin, um, people who had naked option positions or put positions. I mean, it was devastating. And if you asked Rip Van Winkle at the end of the year, you said, well, how was the market in 1987? And he just woke up. He'd say, well, it was up slightly. No problems. But in the middle there, oh, boy, it was something. Mm -hmm. But what we experience now is the same kind of thing. The New York Stock Exchange bullish percent clearly showed you something was wrong in February of this year. And I had just had an operation in the market and, and was relatively incoherent. And, but I looked at that thing and it had reversed out. And I'm, I manage a number of accounts. And I immediately went to my wife's 401k or her, her IRA and took her to cash. But you know, I had just left the hospital at that point in time, and I wasn't paying a lot of attention to what was going on. But the bullish percent reversed down, and I took that seriously because this bullish percent to me was the most important market indicator that I have ever seen, and it has stayed that way with me. You know, we've gotten to a point where we've gone away from 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 that, from that being the, the stalwart, the, the most important part of the equation to all kinds of other different types of things, technology things and whatnot. When that big picture in 1947 was created, it's been, to me, the most important one around. So that reversal down was important. Where do we stand right now? It's, it's in a column of O's, which means defensive team is on the field. Well, you got to think about that. Defensive teams on the field, are you going to run plays? Do you, do you give up the potential for upside appreciation and protect your portfolio? Absolutely, yes. That's what you do. And there are many ways to protect your portfolio through puts, short sales, uh, cutting down the, the number of stocks you have, investment philosophy. And um, that's where we stand now. I mean, the bullish percent in column of those. That means defense. And so take, it, so take it to the bank. If you miss the upside on on – Apple or some other stock that you may have had, so, oh, my Lord, it went up 20 points and I wasn't there. You can't be there all the time. You've got to look at that, that uh, market barometer. And, and um, I can't think of who it was that said this, but he said what we need is a soulless barometer in the markets. And that's what A.W. Cohen came up with is a soulless barometer. And I think if we go back to that, 
and start with that as our starting point and then work from there out, then I think we're going to be better off. I think you can, you can use less things and do well. But I'm going off on a tangent, Ian. No, Go ahead and no. ask me some more questions. No, I think I think that was uh, that was that wonderful. And and looking at, I mean, you, you referenced some historical timeframes like we had there back in 1987 for the bullish percent. I mean, there's a, been a lot of comparisons drawn here recently as well to some other a little bit more recent times in the market um, where we also had some pretty interesting movement there on the bullish percent too. I mean, namely looking at like your 2001, your 2008 timeframe. And I mean, in looking at the chart of the BPNYSC there on the site, you can use the expand button to go back and see it further for those that are listening. Um, going back to those time frames that we see there, and it, I mean, frankly, with that bullish percent indicator, there's been a lot of column changes so far this year, and we're we're not even quite halfway through the year yet, right? Um, and and in right. looking, looking back at times that had, had seen this amount of really kind of volatility, right? Really, kind of got to go back to that 2008 time frame as well. And so, um, mm-hmm. wondered if maybe you could speak a little bit as well to just how the how the volatility that we've seen, the back and forth movement. I mean, all these column changes we see in indicators like this and in others. And how best to kind of take the uh, to to use these to take take the meat of the move and um, in terms of what you're looking at. Well, you know the the bullish percent changed somewhat back in I can't think of the year now. I'm getting old, man. <laughs> in the in the 80s when the index options came out, and the index options allowed institutions to begin to hedge positions without doing a lot of activity. I mean, you could just short the, the, the Dow Jones, short the Standard Poor's 500, and, and hedge your position. And it caused a lot less activity. Um, technology now probably has brought more activity in. But you look at the changes in the bullish percent. You know, I'm looking at it right now in the year 2000. You had uh, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine nine changes in the year 2000. But what you want to watch for is the changes that happen at high levels. So we always looked at it as a football indicator, offense, defense. Do you have the ball or don't you have the ball? And secondly, how's your field position? So if you have, if you're on defense and you're below 30%, then things aren't so bad. You know, then you start governing yourself accordingly. I'm going to start putting uh, my plays together. I'm going to be ready when this reverses up from 30% because at 30% on the bullish percent index is basically telling you that everyone is sold that wants to sell. And, and the whole, everything here is built on the irrefutable law of supply and demand. The whole market is. I mean, if you took CNBC, you took all of the talking heads, you took all of the research on Wall Street, and you put it into a funnel. And it comes down, that funnel comes down to a point at the end, at, at the bottom, at that little board where the, where the water or whatever you put in comes out. That's the point at which the rubber meets the road, and that's price. So all of this research, all of the things that they say, because I've, I've been watching CNBC, which I never would ever have done, um, but now that I'm retired, I, I find myself turning the darn thing on. And... I watch these things. I see these guys saying the same thing every day. Um, and you could bundle it all up together, put it in that, that funnel, and it comes down to price, the irrefutable off supply and demand. If there are more buyers than sellers willing to sell, price will rise. doesn't matter what they did and what, 
you know, what, what kind of business they're in or what the, the CEO just did or anything like that. Um, it comes down to price. And when you compare and contrast buying and selling signals, that's where you're going to get the, the most uh, bang for your buck. And that's what this New York Stock Exchange bullish percent is. It's, it's not a, a price-activated chart in which you're looking for buy and sell signals. It's a comparison and contrast between buy signals on a point and figure chart. You can only do this with point and figures. And sell signals on a point and figure chart. So when you're high and you're above 70%, which you just recently got there, it was at 80%. That's telling you everyone's in that wants to be in. So when a stockholder calls his customer up and says, Mr. Jones, I got this company we should buy. Um, you know, they make uh, French fries. And he says, yeah, I love French fries, but I don't have any money to buy. I'm already fully invested. Do you suggest I go on margin or something? No, everyone is in that wants to be in. So reversal from a very high level is very dangerous. So at any rate, this is, this is an indicator that you should take into consideration. It should be the first thing that you look at and then determine your place. For me, I'm very option-oriented. I ran an option strategy department for nine years in Reed First Securities. And I'm very option-oriented because it allows you to become more of an architect with the account. So when I need to adjust things, I can just adjust them a little bit with options here and there. I can do covered rights. I can buy puts. I can, I can do all kinds of different things to mitigate risk. And that's where I am with, with that, is more in the option area, coupled with owning stock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How about you guide me? Because I could go off on a tangent, Ian. So no. guide me where you want me to go, man. Yeah, absolutely. So, TD, on the options there, as you mentioned, I mean, Dorsey, with Dorsey, right? I mean, starting off as more of a kind of options-oriented firm, and you said you, you still do a lot of options trading there yourself. I mean, we've been getting a fair amount of questions here on our end about individuals that might be a little bit on the newer side, two options. And, I mean, wondering, really, is is it a good time to use options? Is kind of this volatility in the market, is it is it a good or a bad time to be using options? And and, and maybe the best ways that they, they might should, uh, should look to go about doing so in this kind of market environment. Yeah, well, when you look with options, one of the exchanges came out with a great uh, cliche or marketing tool that options give you options. <laughs> and that's exactly it. Options give you options. So when you're familiar with the option market, doesn't mean you have to be a trader. And we'll talk about trading in just a second on options. <clears throat> you can be a risk mitigator. I am, I am primarily an option seller. I like to sell uncovered options because I always believe that if I start in with your money in my pocket, I've got an advantage. Mm -hmm. But the other side of the coin is you have to have a larger account and have experience to do these types of trades. People who buy options, this is where they end up going wrong. Buying options, number one, is over leverage. If you over leverage yourself, let's say you're typically a 300 share buyer and you buy 10 contracts, that's a thousand shares. So you have now leveraged yourself from 300 to 1,000 shares. If things go wrong, you're in deep trouble. So you never want to over leverage. And here's another thing that I learned from the late, great Jimmy Yates, who's a great friend of mine. And Dorsey Wright actually started as a combined company with DYR Associates, Jimmy Yates. It was an option firm. And his philosophy was, and Jim, to me, was the most astute person in options ever is when you buy a contract, number one, don't leverage. 
And number two, hold the contract to expiration. Now that takes the trading aspect out of it. So if I want to own XYZ company, technology company, and I'm a 200 share buyer typically, I'm going to buy two contracts and hold them to expiration. And that's where you get several times a year some massive moves in a particular stock. And if you are relegated to holding it till expiration, that one move can be enough to make up any small losses that you have in premium. Because the premium is not that large. I mean, your, your risk is predefined. But if you also have a predefined concept of holding that option to expiration, some of these moves can be astronomical and give you a great return. So that's my philosophy on buying options, which is one thing most people do. People want to trade options, and that's the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, um, and with options continuing to evolve with the rest of the rest of really the financial markets as a whole, I mean, the, the introduction now of you have um, options with a shorter time frame, right? I mean, you have weekly, daily options, even at some points. I mean, how, how do you think that affects things and maybe the volatility of the market as a whole kind of moving forward from here? Well, the volatility of the market, number one, you don't have to be short-term with options. You can go to leaps with some long-term options. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, can, you can go way out and, and, and hang on and make a long-term investment decision with options. So it's not options don't mean that you have to be trading. Um, the volatility, however, one of the main ingredients of an option premium is volatility. And as volatility rises, option premiums rise. And that is, is beneficial to the seller of options. So if that premium rises and, that, and, and I can sell that, that option and I believe the stock is going to remain relatively neutral or down, um, then I'm, that's a good play for me. So when your volatility increases like this, so does the premium. Mm. So it benefits the seller, not the buyer. Another thing that we were talking about there, TD, um, I think we were talking about this beforehand, but was some of the movement we've seen outside of really the kind of the equity market, or at least the domestic equity market, looking more at the dollar. Right? The, um, one of the ways you can view the mm -hmm. dollar here on the platform is the, the ticker DX forward slash Y. It's a U.S. dollar index spot um, there that we have on the on the Dorsey Wright Research platform. And if you type in that ticker, I mean, you can see as we talked about some of the some of the research report, but um, we we had some downwards movement at the beginning of the year right there in March, followed by some upwards movement and some consolidation. And now um, in May and then at the beginning of this month as well, had some pretty significant drop off there in that dollar index spot. Um, moving a triple bottom sell signal, breaking through to a negative trend. Um, and so I, I know that we were talking a little bit beforehand about some of the movement we've seen in the dollar and how that might affect some other areas. But I was wondering what your, what your thoughts were on that, on the particular chart and the, the movement there for the dollar as a whole. Well, my thoughts on that, you know, and, and, and keep in mind, I'm not an economist. Everyone listening to this has um, great economists at your firm, and um, they probably have a better handle on it than I do. I just, I'm just an average guy who has a degree in economics and loves economics, and, and I, I watch these things. I, what, what's been happening here is the incredible amount of money that has been uh, created out of thin air is going to come to roost. You're going to have to pay for that in some way, in some way shape, or form. And, and remind me, if I, if I forget, to go back to the Jimmy Carter days. Um, when, when, you, when you create that much debt, What's probably going to come from that is 
higher interest rates, ultimately. And another thing that, that I was thinking about this morning with, with higher interest rates is another old adage is don't fight the Fed. Well, the Fed is hell-bent on keeping rates low. Okay, I agree with that. It, uh, I'm, I'm not going to make a bet on higher interest rates. I have to watch the charts of, of the different um, uh, tools that are interest rate sensitive and see what happens in that respect. So I'm just not going to willy-nilly say, you know, that the rates are, are going to rise because I, I got a feeling that Powell is going to, uh, could even end up going to negative rates. But at any rate, when you create this kind of debt, you got to pay for that debt somehow, some shape or form. Um, picture a stock that you're going to buy. You're buying XYZ stock, nice family company. They make um, easy chairs and things. They've done extremely well. But then all of a sudden, times get tough and they create 50% more debt. Now you look at that company and say, wait a minute, with that kind of debt, do I want to pay this price? And the answer is probably not. But there is a price that you're willing to pay that's lower. Well, the same thing here with, with interest rates and debt. Um, we've got to pay for it some way. So what you're likely to see, and I'm not one of your firm's economists, but what you're likely to see <clears throat> is higher taxes. No question about that. Tax rates are going to increase. If you start watching the news, you'll see it happen. Somehow, they're going to have to pay for this, and you're going to have to pay for it, the people listening to this. So interest rates could be rising. The dollar could be falling. When you think about the dollar, if, 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 if I was China and I bought a trillion dollars worth of, worth of U.S. debt and I paid a certain amount for my bonds, those bonds are going to have to go up if, if that debt increases by doubles, doubles. So with that kind of debt, and they look at it and say, wait a minute, I wouldn't buy any more bonds unless they were cheaper. That's likely to happen too. So inversely, you're likely to see interest rates rise. I don't, I can't guarantee that, but it's something I will watch. I'll keep an eye on it. When I see this dollar break a triple bottom and break its long-term trend line, that's doing exactly what I would expect it to do is the dollar begins to decline. So what if I wanted to pay off China? And I said, okay, China, we're going to buy all your debt back. And um, China says, fine. But how are we going to do this? Well, let's, let's take it to an extreme and say we devalue the dollar to zero. Or we go to China and we say, look, let's offer the uh, Chinese a dollar worth zero. They're not going to buy that. And there'll be anarchy here in the U.S. So instead, you have to back off. You've got to back off from an extreme, but it's a good way to think about it. Back off to a point where they would accept it, we could accept it. And that's how prices move up and down. You look at a chart here where this long-term trend line is broken, and he said, Tom, I'm not going to tell you the name of the chart. Would you be a buyer here? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What might I do? I might short the puts um, and, and buy it at a lower price. Um, I might short the calls and the expectation it doesn't go too high. I could, I could do a straddle and saying it's probably going to stay between – sell a straddle, stay between two points. But – these are the things that you're going to watch for. And this dollar index, if you guys, I would be writing up a, a report on this, that that dollar index has now broken that long-term trend line. Now, sit back and think about why would it break the long-term trend line like that, the U.S. dollar? 
Well, it's for those things that I was just talking about, the debt, we just keep pr printing money, printing money, and it's going to come to roof someday. So to carry on a bit further with that, I mean, with the dollar breaking down, a lot of times, at least how we'll talk about it here is, is using the dollar as kind of a, a gauge on on where with potential investments that might be in favor, right? I mean, looking specifically at domestic versus international equities. I mean, we've seen for the last, for, for, for years at this point, that domestic equities have continued to out, outpace the international equity space across most, most of the relative rankings that we have, right? Um, but now with uh, international, I guess, falling out of bed quite significantly there, um, it had, any kind of uh, thoughts or, or anything on, on uh, how that might affect or what, what might be a place to look out for there moving forward from here? Yeah, well, well, what's happening is you guys are very astute and you're, and you're watching these indicators and you see that. And for you to be able to tell me international has really fallen out of bed there, so is the U.S. So mm -hmm. maybe this is a global thing that's happening to us. Mm -hmm. might be global. But, it, but uh, well, where do you go to hide, Ian? I, I, don't, I don't know where you go. So, you know, when I think back to the Jimmy Carter years, and this is something that is imprinted on my mind indelibly. I remember buying my father a short-term treasury for 18%. If you got a mortgage, it probably was 12%. Some of you got, that have some age to you that are listening to this, remember that. It was 12%. You could buy a um, um, three-year CD for 13%. It was crazy. But along with that, gold was going through the roof. Who cared about interest rates being high and buying, buying bonds and you know, their, their old stayed investments, and I just got to sit there and get my 18% a year? When you could buy a gold company and have it double the price before you knew it. Hecla Mining, I remember Hecla, that's indelibly printed on my mind. They're a silver company was $5, and during the Jimmy Carter years, or thereafter, that stock went from 5 to 47 That's a heck of a move. Anything gold went straight up. If it was a barbershop that was listed on the exchange and it was called Gold's Barbershop, it went straight up. <laughs> it didn't make any difference. I'm telling you, it was the most amazing thing you could imagine. So nobody did anything back there in the early 80s 1980 or so around there. I can't remember the exact dates, but, but except by gold and gold stocks. Well, I want you to pull up the chart of GLD, which is the gold ETF index. Not a bad looking chart there. I had that, uh, that breakout earlier this week to, to cap it off. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, GLD looks, I mean, it's, it's like a Picasso painting. It's, it's no Indianapolis 500. If you want something that has a, a faster move, then you want to look at these stocks because this is more slower. Look at the bottom of the chart. This is a very, very long-term chart. So if I was looking at stocks to buy, I would simply pull up a gold stock. Let's say pull up HEPA, which is a silver stock, on our charting system. And I say ours, your charting system. And um, look to the left-hand side of the chart, and you'll see other ideas. That's a great place to get ideas in a particular sector, other ideas. Other ideas have to be in an uptrend on a buy signal, relative strength positive, et cetera, et cetera. Everything's got to be straight with it. 
So it gives you ideas in that precious metal sector of things that are doing extreme, extremely well. And then you can look right there in that one chart. It says sector matrix. It does the matrix where it's dividing each thing, making a relative strength calculation and giving you the strongest to the weakest. And that right there, there's two things right there that everyone should be looking at because you get a tremendous amount of ideas right from there that the DWA system gives you every single night. You don't have to lift a finger except go in there and, and, and look at it. So you get a, a lot of ideas that way. Um, if you looked at SA, I was looking at that the other night because I'm helping a person learn options now. Um, SA is uh, Seabridge Gold Incorporated. Look at that chart. I mean, the interesting thing about that chart is it's come up and it's made, it hasn't made a new high, but it came right up to where it was back in September of, of 2018. Couldn't get through. Well, why couldn't it get through? Who knows? All we know is sellers are there. More than likely what happened was somebody bought that stock back in 2017 at the price of $8. And they've been sitting with that stock and basically told the broker, when I get back even, get me out. So you've got sellers there. But once it breaks through there, those sellers at that 1650 level are gone and the probability is higher prices. But look at that, but look at that chart. And uh, this is Seabridge Gold Incorporated. So you can get a lot of ideas that way. If I looked at gold stocks, that might be more of my play than GLD itself, which is gold itself. Um, but gold, but that, that chart counts very, very high. So I'm not saying you're going to buy gold right now, but the interesting thing about our system is you can look at these stocks like the Seabridge. Go right up here and, and click on set action point. Okay, let the computer manage it for me. So I'm going to click column reversal down, and then I'm going to click uh, save alert. And now I don't have to look at it anymore. If that stock reverses down in, in, on, on, on its chart, then I'm going to get an email, and that's going to cause me to go look at this chart and see what I, want, I might want to do. So that's the beauty of our system is being able to use these things, set um, um, not only alerts. These are the beautiful things about, about your system. When you can set alerts, you can set action points. You can say, if the relative strength chart turns negative, let me know. Now I don't have to look at it. That's one thing I want to see. So you let the system manage your portfolio for you by setting all these different action points. And then when you get an email, it says, hey, I should go look at this. And a lot of different um, tools and, and things on the platform that you can use here. And one one other one here, TD, that I did want to um, ask you about, I think I regret if I didn't get given how much I know you do use it there, is, is something that we have on the site called the Implied Momentum Bell Curve for those that are listening. Um, it's a pretty powerful tool and one that I know that you, you like and look at pretty frequently there. And for those following along there on the platform, in order to find that, you can go up top and go to asset allocation and go over to distribution curves. And you can click on the little button from there that's a, that gives you the implied momentum bell curve. And it's going to default um, to show you all of the names there in the S&P 500. Um, and so we've seen a fair amount of movement on this TD over the past several weeks, as I'm, uh, as I'm sure you've been looking at there yourself. I mean, in, in, during the market sell-off we saw there in March, 
Um, we had just most of the stocks moved all the way to the left over there in zone one, right? Um, very few in mm -hmm. five and six. And then over the last couple of weeks, right at the end of May there, we had most of the things pushed to the right in zones five and uh, in zones five and six with not very much at yeah. all in zones one and two. Now we see only one stock there in zone one and a, uh, most of the stocks are now found in the middle and in, in that zone four range. So I was wondering if you, you've been looking at this or anything in particular that you, that yeah. you uh, had well, taken from this moving forward. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I wasn't going to mention it. I, I wasn't even thinking about it, really. <laughs> but um, that's one of the most important things you can look at. And this takes you back to Statistics 101 in college. And it also takes me back to Jim Yates of DYL and Associates, um, who created the concept zones, mainly because standard deviations scare people. That's a, a term that Nobody likes to hear standard deviation. What does that mean? Well, if you looked at men's heights in the world, some of us are too tall, some of us are too short, but 68% of us are dead center right in the middle. One standard deviation above or below mid-range. That's where most of us are. And when I say standard deviation, Jim Yates called them zones because it was easier to accept and easier to understand. So what happens is when you get a market sell-off like we have had, you see stocks beginning to move to the left. And on our system, it's, um, you see them in green or see them in red. And red means that the 10-week relative strength is turned negative, green positive. But still, as they begin shift to the left-hand side, you begin to see an oversold condition. When you see everything jammed up on the left-hand side, that means the probability is extremely high that the stock or whatever you're looking at is going to seek, go back to mean, the middle of the bell curve, because that's where, that's where things want to be, is in the middle of the bell curve. When you see them skewed to the right-hand side in zone five and zone six, then that's the point at which things are too high and you need to mitigate risk. So when you say these different zones, all we're always saying is in standard deviations, some of us are too tall, some of us are too short, most of us are in the middle, 68% in the middle. So what you need to do really to be successful is to think about what strategy could I do that is going to be right for me 68% of the time. So if you went into a casino and I said, hey, look at this, this uh, slot machine, and it's going to pay you out 68% of the time. But hey, we've got a thousand other slot machines out here. Which one are you going to play? the one that pays you out 68% of the time. It doesn't do it overnight, doesn't do it that minute, but over time, it's, that's where it, it's going to be. If you look at women's blood pressures around the world in developed countries, they're normally distributed. And on the right-hand side of every chart, what I wanted to make sure is that everyone saw that standard deviation move um, in any stock. So you see top, median, and bottom, T-O-P, M-E-D, and B-O-T. That's the bell curve. Turn that chart on its side, draw a bell curve over it, and you can see exactly where that stock lies. Now, if you took all the stocks, let's say in the Standard Poor's 500 trade, and say, let me put them where they would be under that big mother bell curve. So I'm going to put that symbol like um, this one right here that we're looking at, um, Seabridge Gold, SA. 
I'm going to put that a little bit to the right-hand side of uh, MED, median. So MED, where this stock wants to be, is 14.50. Where is it trading? 16. Okay, so is it on the overbought side of the ledger? Yes, it is. Um, then what do I do with that stock? If I'm going to buy that stock, I want to hedge it. I want to buy the stock and sell a call. By selling the call, I effectively am reducing my cost prices to get in, and I'm forcing the stock back toward the mid-range, which is where it wants to be anyway. When you see stocks like you just mentioned, Ian, that are skewed to the right-hand side heavily, you skewed more toward three standard deviations above trend, there's no question what you have to do. Number one is not buy any more stock. Number two is hedge the positions you have. Um, three, for those that are so inclined, look for short positions. But the probabilities are in your favor of thinking down, not up. When the opposite happens and you're down close to the uh, three standard deviations below trend, which would be the mid-range, in this stock, it's uh, $10. If this stock moved down to $10 tomorrow, um, it would be in a condition where you'd want to own it, definitely. So this is a, a, a market indicator that you want to take into consideration when you look at the stocks you're buying or you're thinking about the overall market. It's, it's to me, absolutely beautiful. It's like a Picasso painting. Um, when you look at the market and, and you look at all the stocks combined and you take each one of their symbols, say the S&P 500, and put it where it's supposed to be, like this one, a little bit, little bit far to the right-hand side. But let's look at let's look at a, a slower mover, like Coca-Cola. Let's just pull up KO and see where Coca-Cola would land on its bell curve. So I'm pulling that stock up right now, and the answer is, and Coca-Cola is now on the oversold side of the ledger at 44. Where is Coca-Cola perfectly normal? Coke wants to be 46. That's where it wants to be. It's now 44. So this would be a stock that I'd want to probably own, um, considering this, considering this bell curve. I'd want to be a buyer, not a seller of the stock. If we looked at, let's take one that everyone loves to death, is Apple Computer, mm. AAPL. Let's just see where that is. I haven't looked at that uh, recently. But Apple Computer is way over the top. So it's more than three standard deviations above trend. Apple computer would be a hard thing to buy right now. Doesn't mean that it can't go from here straight up because this bell curve is dynamic. It will move with the stock. If the stock continues to move, let's say the stock went up from um, three, 350 something to, to 400, eventually 400 would become normal. That's eventually. But now where you stand is, it's three standard deviations above trend. So you take all these stocks and you place them on a big mother bell curve. And then you look at those symbols all together there, and you get the most beautiful picture of the market. I mean, it, 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 it's absolutely beautiful. So that's a concept that I have used for many years. It's one of the two classes that were the most important that I had in university. Econ 101 and Statistics 101. I mean, I probably could have taken those two classes and, and, and left, but those were the two most important classes I had. So when you think about this, uh, this, this, kind of, this comes into play every day for you. 
Let's say you get to a particular stoplight in your car and you take off and, and, and there's a little old lady from Pasadena uh, next to you, her little old, old rambler, and, you, and you're trying to get to the gym quick and you really take off. Next thing you know, you get stopped by another stoplight. Well, that's regression to mean. That's how stocks come back to me, where you're supposed to be. That's how the speed limit makes you come back to where you're supposed to be. Next thing you know is a little old lady from Pasadena sitting right next to you on the next spot stoplight that you were speeding like crazy to get to. The light regressed you to me, and the little old lady came right up next to you. So it makes you think that maybe you should need to slow down and drive like the little old lady from Pasadena to be more successful. But when you think about let, let, let's, let's let's talk about the, what's going on in the economy now. What's going on in the economy now is what's supposed to go on. This doesn't surprise me a bit. It doesn't worry me a bit. This is a, a, a situation in which this market and, and country basically is being turned over to the millennials. This will happen every – it's like seasons of the year. And I would suggest that you get the book, The Fourth Turning. The Fourth Turning is a great book to give, let you understand the four different cycles that we go through <clears throat> Excuse me, in our lifetime. I happen to be 72 years old now. I won't be long before I'm 73. And, and, and to me, we're in winter. You're, what happens is you've got the summer, you've got the spring, you've got the fall, you've got the winter. And each one of these are things that we go through that they're 20 to 30 year time frames. I think about back in the 60s when I was in the military, I was in the Navy. Everybody hated me. Nobody liked military people. We were, we were fighting a war then. Back then, they hated, they hated the military. They hated us. And the, and the saying that you would hear back then was power to the people. That was the big thing. The fist went up in the air, and they would say power to the people. But what's going on now? Power to the people. This is a matter of we're in the fourth turning right now. We're in the winter. And this kind of thing is supposed to happen. It's going to be tough going for us. You may end up seeing, seeing us go to socialism. Um, whatever happens in this, when we're finished with this uh, fourth turning, we move into the spring. And any of you who are young and you're millennial, you're in essence taking over now. And you're going to move into the spring next, and it's going to be a wonderful life for you. That's where everything comes alive. That's where the flowers come alive. That's where everything is budding, and, and, and it's beautiful, and the temperature changes, and it's more acceptable. That's what you're going to end up going through. The winter is something that is very, is very, very difficult. We something we have to go through. It's a cleansing, in essence, because like the winter, the leaves come off of the trees. Um, it gets colder. It gets harder to deal with life. You know, you get up in the morning, your car's frozen, you got to go out. Car, you know, all those different things that happen in the winter, but that will be over. But we're in it right now. And that's what makes me accept what's going on because, you know, I don't, I don't get upset with what's happening right now. It's supposed to happen. We're turning this over to the millennials right now. And this is just my opinion. I'm by no means an economist or anything like that, but I see it happening. I've lived long enough to, to, to see this take place. So... We're in the winter now, and the best way to understand this is get the book, The Fourth Turning. The Mayans had something that they called tying up the years, and this goes back to the Mayan Indians. Joseph Schumpeter had this concept 
way back in the 40s, I believe it was. But that's what we're going through right now. Power to the people. That's what we used to say, or the, 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 the left used to say back in the 60s. Power to the people. And that's where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what you hear people say, power to the people. Certainly. And I mean, in looking at it as well, I mean, mentioning the, the different phases, the different seasons, um, things ebbing and flowing, right? And I mean, we see that reflected in the market, too. And looking at these different market timeframes that you've been you've been discussing with the experience here, right? I mean, it's, things can't go up forever, right? They, they do need to take a little breather there and sometimes a little bit more uh, deep of a breather than others. But um, the, the, at the end of the day, there is still going to be light at the end of the tunnel, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely it is. And things don't happen overnight. They did like in 1987, happened in one day, down the equivalent of 6,000 points, 6,000 some points uh, today. But they happen fast sometimes, they happen slow sometimes. 1973-74 was a terrible year for investors. Many of them lost 60% of what they had. And I was just coming in as a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch trying to prospect these people. And man, that's the last thing they wanted to hear was you were a stock broker because you had just made me broker. And, and 73, 74 was very, very difficult time for us, but we go through these times and then, and then they begin to pick up uh, during the 1960s commodities were the play. You know, you wanted to be every single branch officer office of Merrill Lynch had a group that traded commodities. Now you don't find anybody. You walk into a branch office, you don't find any commodity brokers. But we may come back to that. We may come back to, to where commodities are supreme. You just have to keep your eyes open, think about things, and, and, and for God's sake, don't watch TV. <laughs> well, TD. Uh, but I've been, but I've been, I've been, I've been doing it. <laughs> uh, it's, been, it's, it's hard not to, especially in the quarantine state of things. Um, and, and with that, I mean, in, yeah, exactly. In, in uh and with what's been going on here recently and as well um with you taking i guess the the official i guess step back from uh from from the dorsey right side of things here earlier this year um one thing i think our users would be would be um, very happy to hear as well is i mean any any kind of other plans on the horizon anything that you might be might be tooling around with now or or, or looking forward to do now that uh have a little bit more time on your hands yourself well you know what you know now that I recuperate from operation, uh, I'm, I'm getting right back into it. I just absolutely love the markets and I love options and the things you can do with it. So for me, my days are now spent uh, back doing what I love, which is, is the markets. So I don't have, you know, I've been doing this for so many years, um, probably 45, 46 years. Um, I don't know anything else. And it's to me like you get a chance to wake up in the morning and play the greatest game created by mankind. And uh, it, it takes a lot of thought. You can't do it willy-nilly. You can't just turn over your money to anybody to manage. They need to have a logical, organized way of going about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for, for joining us here. And I know it's a uh, it's a beautiful Friday afternoon here in Richmond, so I don't want to, want to keep you on here for, for too much too much longer here. But um, it's been great to hear from you, TD, and hopefully once, uh, once all this quarantine stuff is uh, is wrapped up in the hopefully not too distant future that um we'll, we'll be able to get everyone back back together again here soon anytime you want man i'm here all righty well thank you very much again and thank you very much to everyone that's joining us for this week's podcast
if you have any questions on anything that we've covered or, or any kind of a, how to get signed up for a prescription a subscription, potentially, if you're not on one, um, always feel free to reach out to us. Phone lines are always open, even in the quarantine state of things. You can give us a call at 804-320-8511 or shoot us an email as well at dwa at dorseywright.com. So thank you very much, CD, and thank you all. And hopefully we'll speak to you all again soon.